Good morning, church. I am very glad to be here. 53rd, 53rd missions conference. That's amazing. I don't know if you guys completely fully appreciate how amazing that is. Like that's that is unheard of. Um, well, there's a lot of churches out there that are no longer doing mission conferences. Um, the idea that you've been doing them 53 times in a row is it is it a a, a complete winning streak? You haven't missed a well, you had like a, maybe a shorter one during COVID, possibly? Yeah, is that what I heard? 53. That's amazing. Um, let's see. So, uh, I guess I have to make introductions. Um, Ken said I, I'm a recruiter. I might get at that in a minute. But um, Ken was the first person that we met when we pulled into the driveway the other night. Uh, we were the first people here. Well, Ken was the first person here. And then we were the first missionaries here. Um, and it was dark, and I wasn't quite sure which door to go in, and Ken was down there working and sweeping and getting things ready for everybody to come, and I pulled in, and I asked if I was in the right place, and Ken, after telling me I was in the right place, he asked who I was, and he said, well, you don't look at all like your picture, which uh, I wasn't quite sure how to respond to that. I wanted to say, well, it's been a tough three weeks, so, (laughs) but Ken's right. I don't look like the picture that he found. Um, so, Ken, I, I brought a couple other pictures. So, here's another picture um, that I no longer look like. Um, that's me up there. Uh, here's a picture of me and Joan, what we used to look like. Um, once upon a time, we lived in Papua New Guinea. We were there for about five years. And here's what we looked like when we were over there. That's what I looked like in New Guinea. Here's what me and Joan looked like in Papua New Guinea. Um, after about five years, the Lord brought us back here to the United States. And this is what we looked like when we came back here. Um, our job now is to we travel around. We're representatives of the mission. We go to any place we're invited. Uh, we go to uh, churches and schools and youth groups and colleges and coffee shops and any place where we can get a couple of people to sit still long enough, then we're going to tell them about what God is doing in tribal missions around the world, and we're going to try to get them involved in some way. Um, are you guys picking up on a theme in these pictures? Yeah, so Ken, I've changed, but this shirt hasn't changed. So um, yeah, I no longer look like the picture that you got, and, uh, but that shirt looks exactly the same, which is kind of amazing when it goes back to 2008, I think. Um, anyway, we are, we are definitely glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for allowing us to be a, a part of what your church is doing to see the name of Jesus Christ spread around the world. Um, I, we are with an organization called Ethnos 360. Ethnos 360 is a, uh, I try to explain it as like a, a church planting slash Bible translation organization. Uh, we work with indigenous, indigenous people groups around the world, tribal people. For 75 years, our name was New Tribes Mission. Um, that was a pretty good name. Um, and after 75 years, we decided to change it. I, I, I don't know. I, I think it was probably a good idea. It's a little too close to New Transmission. Um, so we got a lot of calls from people wanting their cars fixed and things like that. So now we're called Ethnos 360, which I also think is a good name. Um, regardless of the name that's used, we, we are still doing the same thing that we have always done. We are seeking out languages of people hidden in the dark corners of this world, living completely outside the reach of the gospel. I'm talking about people who have no church in their language, have no Bible in their language, have no Christians in their language able to reach them. 
people who only because of the place where they were born and the language that they were, spoke, that they were born into are outside the reach of the gospel. We continue to look for those people just like we did in 1942. We continue to send fully trained individuals sent out by churches to take the gospel to those people. Um, I'd like to take just a couple of minutes to explain how that goes. I'm sure you guys are probably familiar, but maybe somebody's walked in off the street, and uh, I want them to know how this works. So in a nutshell, basically, let's see, I'll start right here. Um, Timo and Becca, this might be something that you guys have in your future, right? Um, You go down to Paraguay. You move into Paraguay, and you learn the national language of Paraguay. I'm guessing it's Spanish, right? Okay. And their goal is to plant a church among this unreached people group, this tribe, right? So there's a lot of things they're going to have to do. They're going to need to move into that tribe, right? They're going to move into that tribe. They're then going to have to learn the language of that tribe. Now, oftentimes, it's an unwritten language. And just about every single time, there is no other helps to help you learn that language. There's no Rosetta Stone. There's no, there's no, no one else outside that language has learned the language. No one else has done the groundwork for that. So you're starting from scratch trying to speak these people's language. The goal being being able to speak it like an adult who had grown up there, right? So now your, your job is to learn the language and the culture of the people that you're living with. Um, you're doing that. You're, you're creating an alphabet for those people if they don't have one. And then you're, you're teaching people, adults, how to read and write their language for the very first time. How to make marks out of a piece of paper and know what those marks mean, that they have a sound. You teach adults how to read and how to write. Right? So this is a huge job. It's a huge task. Um, not even considering the fact that you've had to build a house out there. Um, oftentimes there's no place to plug in your electricity because there's no power lines because you're in the middle of nowhere. So now you're going to have to put up solar panels or something so that you can run your computers. You're trying to figure out how do we get food to, to live and to stay here and all of this stuff, right? Has anyone ever done that before? Has anyone ever built a house out in the jungle? Anyone here ever like learned a language that nobody else speaks where you're having to create an alphabet and teach the people how to do that? Have you guys ever done that? What? Are you serious? Well, we better back up to right here because what they had to do was they had to go to school to learn how to do this. They want to be missionaries. They want to serve the Lord. They have a servant's heart, right? But we don't think it's adequate enough to just want to do that. For the same reason that I wouldn't go to a dentist who had never gone to dentist school is the exact same reason why these guys wanted to be adequately trained. So they've gone through, I'm guessing you've gone through a minimum of two years of Bible, right? That's, that's what we require. We require a minimum of two years of Bible. You can get that at a lot of Bible colleges. We have our own Bible college that you guys went to. I know you did because I saw you when you were there in the hallway. So this is a great Bible school. they got two years of Bible with a missions emphasis. All of the teachers there are missionaries who have to raise their support to be there and to work there and to to live there. Um, That's up in Waukesha, Wisconsin. And then after that, before you got over to this step, you then had to go to learn how to do all those things. How to build a house and how to set up your solar panels. How to make a place that's functional enough for you to live there in in that tribe for a number of years. They also learned how to learn a, a, a language. We have a language school that is probably unlike any other language school in that when you graduate, you haven't learned another language. You have learned how to learn 
an unwritten language. Phonetics and phonemics and grammar and how to, how to take this language that somebody is dab, 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 blabbering off in their language and you're like, what in the world are they saying? And you're trying to pick out words and you're trying to figure out how to write them down knowing that eventually you're going to have to create an alphabet for that language and teach those people how to read and write and one day eventually translate the Bible into their language, right? So you're actually starting right over here. But even before you start right here by going to school, at some point you had to hear from somebody that this is still a thing. That there's still entire languages out there in this world who haven't had a chance to hear the gospel. Now, there are people right around us who haven't heard the gospel. There are people in this town. You could drive through this town and you could throw a rock and you... I, don't do that. Don't throw rocks at people. But you get what I'm saying. You could probably hit a house where there's people in there who've never heard of Jesus. But they have the opportunity to hear of Jesus. On our way here, um, we've been staying with my sister-in-law, and on the drive here, every time we've came, come this way, we pass um, a section of the road where there's a church on this side, and there's one right on this side, right across the street. Now, that's nothing new. We live in East Tennessee now. We have that all the time. We probably have four or five in a row facing each other, sharing the same parking lot. There's no shortage of churches. There's no shortage of Christians. You can go to the dollar store, and for a buck, you can buy a Bible. You can find the gospel on the internet. You have no shortage of opportunities to hear about Jesus Christ here in the English language in the United States. That's not the case in all of these other places. So, fast forward. They've built their house. You guys are in some tribe down there in Paraguay. Um, you've learned the language. You've passed all those language checks to where you speak fluently like an adult. You've not only studied the language, but you've also studied the culture of those people. So you know how they think about the world around them. And now, it's time to tell them about Jesus, right? No, we don't do that yet. When we start teaching, we don't start with Jesus. We start in the beginning. We start in Genesis. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. And we teach a series of lessons walking them through the Old Testament. All the way through the Old Testament before we get to Jesus down here in the New Testament. All of these key Old Testament accounts that explain who God is, what our condition is as descendants of Adam, how we have this sin in us because of what he chose to do to disobey God in the garden. This, this scarlet thread, as Bill talks about back there, with from going all the way back from Genesis chapter 3, the idea that there had to be the shedding of blood. There had to be a sacrifice. Something had to die to cover our sins. We teach chronologically from Genesis all the way through that people, so that people understand who God is and who they are in relationship to this holy, holy God. And then we get to Jesus, and that's, that's fantastic. And you get to Jesus, and you're teaching through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and finally you get over here, and these people have a chance to put their faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for them. And it's amazing. And then, and then your job, well, actually, your job is just beginning at that point. Because at that point, now you have a church. You have believers, and quite possibly might be the first time in history, maybe it's the first time since Babel, that these people have had a chance to hear the gospel, and now you have believers. And now your real job starts. Now you're going to start teaching them. You're going to disciple them. You're going to disciple that church to the point where they are now over here, where they have their own leadership, um, they're send, they have their own elders, they're sending out missionaries to the people groups around them. You've been able to translate the scriptures as you're, as you're 
progressing through, you can present them with a New Testament, and then you can back away, you can go back home and work on the Old Testament, making periodic trips back in there, and they are functioning as a fully functioning, self-supporting New Testament church. They don't need any help from the West, they don't need any money from the United States, they don't need our guidance, they've got the Holy Spirit, they've got God's Word in their language, they've got their own elders and pastors and teachers and all of that, and you guys some 20, 25, 30 years later, you get to do this epic mic drop and walk away from something that Jesus has built, and there's now a church where there had never been one there before, and that's amazing, and I hope you guys get the chance to do that. That's what we do. We do that all over the world. Right now, today, there's a people group in Papua New Guinea called the Mali Yali. That's a great name, isn't it? You're gonna, that's going to be in your head. I hope it's in your head because something pretty cool is going to happen later this afternoon. Um, the missionaries for the, with the Malayali, they've been living with them for six years. The past few weeks, um, I forget how many weeks it's been, it's been a long time, they've been doing that. They've been teaching the Bible chronologically to the Malayali people. Yesterday, they got to the crucifixion. Today, at 5 o'clock our time, it's going to be Monday, early in, or not early, in the morning, Monday mid-morning in Papua New Guinea. At 5 o'clock our time, they're going to hear about the resurrection for the very first time. I want you to be praying for them. Right here, right now, during your 53rd mission conference, there's a people group who maybe will decide to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I think they will. You know why? You know, we have a lot of names for Jesus in the English language. The Malayali, as they learned about this Redeemer who was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right? This one who was, was going to make it possible to, to have your sins forgiven, to be right with God. They came up with a name for him. I don't know how to say it because I don't speak Malayali, but here's what it means in English. In English, it means the road-cutting man, the man who cuts a road. When you live in a jungle, the only way to make a road is with a machete, and you cut all the vines and, and bushes and everything out of the way, and you cut a road. You cut a new path. So this Messiah, who they didn't know was going to be Jesus, because Jesus wasn't named until they got all the way over here. Remember, they started way back there. They, called, they started calling him the road-cutting man, this promised redeemer, this deliverer that Jesus promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. They decided, oh, that's the road-cutting man. This is the guy who's going to cut a new path, a road for us to have access to the Father, to the Creator. So today at 5 o'clock, I want you to be praying like you've never prayed before, that the Malayali will put their faith and trust in the road-cutting man. Isn't that amazing? Malayali, today at 5. All right, we're going to be in, uh, um, here they are, here's my glasses, Matthew chapter 22, and um, that, that took a lot longer than I thought it would. I'm going to teach fast. All right, Matthew chapter 2, let's pray. Father God, Creator, thank you for the Malayali people. Thank you that you have sent your people, your ambassadors, your representatives to them in order to share this message. Father, thank you that we have this message as well. Thank you for this church. Thank you for, for the opportunity to dig into your word. Father, help me as I, as, I, as I get into chapter 22. Help me to say the things that you would want me to say and, and not to say the things that I shouldn't say, Lord. I pray that at the end of this we might know your son a little bit better and know a little bit more about you, Lord. It's in your name of your son that we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 22. This is a parable. Um, Jesus was fantastic at using parables. Um, this is the parable of the wedding feast. Verse 1. 
Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Anybody have a wedding recently? No? We've been to a couple weddings this summer. Um, We get invited to a lot of weddings because we do a lot of stuff with young people, and uh, young people end up getting married, and somehow or another they invite us to their weddings, and it's great. It's fantastic. Um, Weddings are a really big deal. Our wedding was, was, was amazing. Um, Joan's mom was like a planner type person. She loved throwing parties, so our, our wedding was extravagant. It was, it was exactly what a wedding should be. Like There were candelabras and cummerbunds and tuxedos and bow ties and, and all of that stuff. Anybody been to a wedding recently? Have you been to a wedding where, um, have you been to a wedding in a barn? Yeah? Okay. Well, just so you know, that's a big thing now. Like, both our kids got married, and they, they didn't have tuxedos. There wasn't a bow tie on any of the guys. There, were, there wasn't a single candelabra. There was, like, like barn wood laying around, and that's what we're seeing. It's like, come on, it's a wedding. Like, let's judge this up a little bit. So the, the best weddings were definitely in the 80s and 90s, not whatever's going on now. My son got married, and just like a, they looked like a bunch of farmers. It looked like they were raising a barn. And if I had told Joan that we were going to get married in a barn, I have no idea what would have happened. But that's the style now. But for the most part, people make it a big deal. Now, I've never been to a royal wedding. Anybody ever been to a royal wedding? Anybody know royalty? No? Okay. That would have been cool if you did. I don't either. Um, we've, we've been to Buckingham Palace uh, twice. Well, we've not been there. We've been outside. <laughs> and We knocked on the gate, but nobody, you know, she didn't open the door. Um, we were there just a few months ago, right before... Um, not long before she passed away, the, the queen. Um, the wedding of a, of, a, of a king of royalty has to be amazing, right? Now, look at this. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. They wouldn't come to the wedding feast. Now, here's a little something you need to know about invitations. Invitations back at that time, at the time that this was written, and at the time that Jesus was speaking this to those people, they would have understood that invitations for a big deal, especially like a wedding, would have been sent out about a year in advance. You would send invitations to the people that you wanted to come to this wedding feast, and then they would take those invitations and they'd, you know, put it on their fridge with a magnet. And they'd realize, okay, about a year from now, we're going we're gonna to have another invitation that comes, Right? And so as it got closer to the wedding, you would then send out an, another invitation, another, you know, hey, it's time for the wedding feast. I want you to come. Everything's ready. Everything's been prepared, right? So these are people who have known in advance that they're invited not just to a wedding, not just to a wedding feast, but to the wedding feast of a prince, the son of the king. And it says right here, they would not come. Now, the people that were hearing Jesus say this, when he got to that, they would have been flabbergasted. It wouldn't have made any sense. Who doesn't go to the wedding of a king, right? Like today, nowadays, we would have gone, right? If you get an invite to something as fancy as a royal wedding, you're going to go. Why would somebody not go? Verse 4, again, he sent his other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. You're going to eat food that is that you've never been able to eat, especially back then. Maybe not now. Like right now, when later on we're going to eat. You guys, okay? So you've had amazing food, and you've been feeding me um, 
unbelievable, not just amounts of food, but unbelievably good tasting food. So just so you know, like I might not get invited back next year, but I'm coming back next year because I, I told Joe and I said, I don't know, we might not go home. Like we don't eat this well at home. So um, yeah, you made the mistake of feeding me really well. So I guarantee you that you guys probably eat better than a king in first, the first century would have. I guarantee that, right? We have got way better restaurants. But put yourself in the shoes of those people back then. You're going, he's just told you what the menu is, how everything is prepared and ready, and it's not going to cost you a thing. You're going to eat the best of the foods, the things that are prepared just for the king and his loved ones. And nobody wants to go. Verse 5. They paid no attention, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Hmm. This is something we see throughout the Old Testament. This is the story of God's interaction with his chosen people, where he took this people and he said, if you follow my commands, if you do what I say you're going to do, things are going to go well with you. And he would send his messengers. He would send his prophets to them. And time and time and time again, they were abused and mistreated and killed by the people of God. Over and over and over. Until finally, he sent his son. And they did the same thing. The king was angry, and he sent his troops, and he destroyed those murderers, and he burned their city. Verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads, and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The king wanted a full wedding feast. He wanted everybody to be there. He wanted the people that he sent the invitation to the first time to be the ones there. They were his special people. They were his loved ones. They were a nation set apart from everyone else. And he offered that invitation to them first. And when they chose not to come to that wedding feast, he still wanted a full house of people. He wanted everybody there at the party to celebrate his son and the, his son's bride and them coming together. So he sends them out. He sends the messengers out again to find whoever they could find. And they did. This is what we see happen in the Gospels. This is what we see happen at the end of Matthew 28, that thing we call the Great Commission. Um, which, by the way, in the past few years, um, I don't know if you know this, it's a sad, sad, sad statistic. That's hard to say. Sad statistic. Um, the majority of uh, church people interviewed have no idea what the Great Commission is. They couldn't pick it out on a multiple-choice Barna test. So young people do not know what the Great Commission is. They've never heard of that. How sad is that? But that message went out. It went out to people like Paul. And then Paul, Paul was the one who planted the churches, who planted churches that planted churches that eventually planted this church. You realize that? Yeah. And the gospel goes around the world. And at some point, there was a point where we had decided as, at a church that the gospel has, has reached every place. It's been to every nation. The commandment was to go and take the gospel to all nations. And we put little pins in a map, and, we, and all the nations have been reached. Until somebody realized that that word translated in your English Bible as nations is the word ethnos or ethnos, depending on how you pronounce it. And it means language groups, people groups, people who consider themselves us and everybody else 
them. People with a language and a culture all their own. And those people are found within those borders that we draw on a map that we call countries and nations. And they're all over the place. And there's so, so many who have not yet been reached. Um, let's see. Here's, this is mission stat time. I'm going to throw out some numbers. I'm not a number guy, but I know that some of you guys are, so let's see what we have here. Um, there's about 7,000 languages in the world, give or take. I, I didn't count them. I don't know who did. I'm just going to trust that uh, they know what they're talking about. Um, 7,000 languages in the world. Um, there's lots of different ways to decide and to get stats out there and numbers on, on how the work is progressing. There's a lot of good websites. Some are good. Some are not so good. Um, Joshua Project, that's a... That's a really useful tool, um, except for the fact that Joshua Project has Papua New Guinea as being like 99% Christian, um, uh, which always comes to a surprise to, to people like the Malayali who are going to hear about Christ today for the first time. Um, it comes to a surprise to them to find out that, oh wow, we were already Christians before because somebody said we were apparently. Um, so numbers, numbers go up and down and I'm not a numbers guy. So let me share this with you. Um, this is my sad list. It's, it's, it's a list, and it's sad. That's why it's called that. I'm not very creative. Um, this sad list is put out by our friends at Wycliffe Bible Translators. Wycliffe is a great organization. They do Bible translation work all over the world. Um, we, where we lived in Papua New Guinea, halfway down our island, is the Madoc people. Um, New Tribes was in there planting a church. They didn't have to do a Bible translation because Wycliffe had been there and done a Bible translation already, right? So we have great friends in Wycliffe. We love Wycliffe. Great organization. This is their list of the languages in the world still without a Bible in their language. All right? So it's not a list of unsaved people, um, but it is a list of languages with, without a Bible. Now, let me ask you this. Can you have a fully functioning New Testament church if you don't have access to God's Word? Ugh, I don't think you can. So at least we can say that these are the languages on planet Earth that don't have a church. There might be a believer or two among those languages, but these are the languages that don't have a church. Or at least, let's just stick with what Wycliffe is saying here, that these are the languages without a Bible. It's written in 12-point font. It starts out in Afghanistan, and it goes, and it goes, and it goes. Let's see. It has the name of the language group, and then it has the name of the country. And then it has a population estimate of those people. And it is this long. You know what's sad about this sad list? What's sad about it is that not only do we know who these people are, we know where they live. We know how many of them there are. And yet this list still exists. So we know where they are in the world. We know who they are. We know how many of them there are. We also know how to reach them. We have methods of reaching these people faster than ever before. We send out more missionaries than we have ever sent out in the history of the church. And still this list exists. Why? There's lots of reasons. We send a lot of missionaries to places where there are already lots of work going on. 
in Chicago. We're from an hour south of Chicago. Um, 94%, oh, here it is. 94% of Christian workers work in English around the world. 94%. 94% of people doing Christian work around the world work in English. The problem with that is that English speakers around the world only make up 6% of the world's population. There are more Christian workers in the city of Chicago than there are working among unreached people groups around the world. Am I saying there needs to be less Christian workers in Chicago? No. You guys have seen the news. We need more Christian workers in Chicago. Am I saying that you shouldn't be working in places where there are Christians and Bibles and churches? No. My entire ministry takes place in a country where there are Christians and churches and Bibles. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that surely you can see that if we put it on a scale, that scale has gone one way and not balanced out. When we still have entire languages who haven't had a chance to hear word one about the gospel, why are we not sending people to those places? Real quick, I've got a, hey Nick, remember when I said I'd give you a special cue for that video? Here's that special secret cue. <laughs> I'm not a numbers guy, but these guys are. Jesus told us 2,000 years ago that our mission is to go and make disciples of all nations. He also promised us that only after we accomplish that task will we receive the blessing of His return. So, how are we doing accomplishing our mission? To answer that, let's classify the 7 billion people on the earth today into three groups. Let's start with the Christians. About 33% of the world's population would identify itself as Christian. We call this segment of the population World C. C for Christian. It's important to remember that not all of the people that fall into World C are true believers in Christ. They merely identify themselves as Christian because of nominal belief in Jesus or because they live in a country where everyone is considered Christian, so they would do the same. Next, there's the 38% of the world that has access to the gospel but has chosen not to follow Jesus. They have Bibles in their language, churches nearby, friends or co-workers who are potentially Christians, or access to other Christian resources in their language. These people have access to the good news, but just haven't acted on it yet. This segment of the population is called World B. That leaves us with 29% of the world, just over one out of every four people on this planet who not only have never heard of Jesus, they have no chance of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. They have no access to the gospel, no Bibles, no churches, no believers nearby, no chance to learn about Jesus. We call that 29% World A. Now on to missionaries. Only one out of every 1,800 Christians in World C decides to serve as a cross-cultural missionary. So, we can pull 400,000 missionaries out of that World C population. That's our total cross-cultural missionary force worldwide. Did you know that 72% of all our missionaries are going to World C? That's right, the vast majority of the missionaries being sent out are going to the people of the world that have Bibles and established churches. 25% of the missionaries are sent to World B, where there is already some access to the church and to the Bible. That leaves only 3% of the total missionary force to handle all of World A, the section of the population without any chance of hearing about Jesus. 29% of the world has no way to hear the gospel, but we're sending only a tiny portion of our Christian workers to them. What about finances? 
Annually, all those Christians in World C earn a total of $42 trillion. And together, they give about $700 billion to Christian causes each year. That includes everything. Christian nonprofits, churches, youth programs, missions, etc. Can you do the math? Less than 2% of Christian income is being given to Christ's causes. Out of that $700 billion given to all Christian causes, only $45 billion is given to missions specifically. That's a little over 6%. In fact, there is more money reported embezzled from the church each year than is given to missions. Remember those 400,000 missionaries? We have $45 billion to support them and their cross-cultural work. But how exactly is it allocated? Well, $39 billion goes to World C every year. Yep, 87% of that mission's money is being spent in areas of the world that have Bibles and churches available. $5.4 billion, or 12%, goes to World B each year, those that have access to the gospel message but have rejected it. That leaves only $450 million, or 1% of all missions money, going to World A, the least reached people of the world. To put that into perspective, annually Americans spend more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than get sent to World A. To summarize, only 3% of our missionary force, armed with only 1% of missions giving, is going out to reach the 2 billion people who don't have access to the gospel. 2 billion people are still waiting for the good news of Jesus Christ. So here's a question for you. What are you going to do to change that? So this king has prepared this amazing wedding feast. He sent out the invitations. The people who got the first invitation decided that they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So he goes out. He sends his servants out to invite the rest of the people. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Let's finish this up. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Now we need to pause and talk about wedding garments really quick. So at that time, in that part of the world, um, this wasn't really something that the, like a wedding in Galilee wouldn't have taken place this way. But among a lot of the Gentile people, when they would have a wedding, they would, one of the things you had to do was you had to provide a wedding garment for all of your guests, right? So they would get dressed up really nice, but unlike us going out and, you know, going through our wardrobe, wardrobe you'd show up and as, when you got there, you were given giving this garment. I don't know what it looked like. Um, again, if it was the 80s or 90s, it would have been a tuxedo with tails, cummerbund, and a bow tie, like a proper wedding should be. Um, but apparently it was, it was something different than that. I don't know what it looked like, but it was provided by the person who was paying for that wedding feast. So the king had wedding garments made for all of the guests. And then you went into the fellowship hall, into the house, into the place where the, the wedding party was going to take place, and everyone was dressed in these wedding garments provided for them by the king. Look at this again. He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Verse 12, And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he, the man, was speechless. He either didn't have anything to say or he refused to have anything to say. Verse 13, Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called but few are chosen. Now, um, as it is with most things in the Bible, there's a lot of this that I don't understand. 
I have a lot of questions about this passage, but I don't have any answers. So you go talk to your pastor when we're done here if you have questions and you're in search of, of answers for this difficult passage. Here's, here's something that I do know. Um, here's something that I learned this last year. Whoever this man was, um, he was different than those around him. One commentator, uh, the, I'm not going to say who he was. Everybody would know him if I said the name. He's been dead a long, long time. Here's what he said. He said, the feast was meant to honor the king's son, but this man had no love for the king or for his son or for the things of the king. He was happy to enjoy the party and the food and the drink the king provided, but in his heart, he had absolutely zero love for the king and the king's son. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. Here's something that I do know. I know that here it says, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those words outer darkness and that place that they're referring to is, is referred to a lot in the New Testament and throughout the Bible. You also hear weeping and gnashing of teeth a lot throughout the Bible. And until just this last year, I've always put the two of those together, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't want to go to that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I've always thought of those two things as the same thing, but they're not. It should have been plainly obvious. They're two words. They are two separate things. The word weeping, as far as it is often used in the Bible, almost always means weeping. This, this deep tearing of your heart, this, this weeping and wailing, this this deep, deep sadness that is flowing out of you. The kind of, the kind of weeping that takes place at an unexpected funeral. In this place, there will be those that are weeping. Possibly weeping because they didn't know the king. Because they did not accept the king's free invitation to come to the feast. And also, there will be gnashing of teeth. And gnashing of teeth and the Bible is always used for this deep, deep anger and hatred. This red hot punch a wall, scream at somebody kind of anger. This gnashing of teeth where you get so angry. All those religious leaders would get so mad at Jesus at what he said. And they would gnash their teeth. And in this place there are going to be those that are going to be weeping because of the chance that they lost. That they didn't accept that invitation. And there are going to be those who still hate the king so much that even being in that outer darkness place, they're gnashing their teeth in their hatred of the king and his son. Three types of people in this passage that I want you to make note of. Um, there were three different types. The first we see, indifferent. These were those people that were more interested in their farm and in their business than they were interested in the things of the king. Don't be, don't be the indifferent person. There's the antagonistic person. These are the people who, in their hatred for the king, they seized his servants, they treated them shamefully, and they killed them. Surely there's none of you like that here today. Number three, this last guy, is the unchanged person. These are those who only pretend to know the king and yet have never really met him. They're fine with enjoying the things that the king offers. They, they enjoy being around the people who know the king. 
but they've been faking it this whole time. Do not be that person. There is a wedding feast coming. The king has prepared a wedding feast for his son and for his bride. I've gotten my invitation and I'm going to be there. And I really, really hope that I get to see each and every one of you. Are you going to the wedding feast? Are you going to be there? What have you done with your invitation to that feast? Have you passed it on to anyone else that you know? Those who haven't yet gotten that invitation, have you shared that invitation to the king's wedding feast? Because I think it's going to be here pretty quick. And I can't wait. I really, really hope that I get to see you there. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Creator, for giving us your word. Thank you that we're able to read it because someone taught us how to read. Thank you that we're able to teach it because you've given us teachers who spend their time pouring through it in order to invest into our lives that we might know your son and know him better. Thank you, Father for loving the American people just as much as you love the Malayali people. And tonight at 5 o'clock, over there in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, when they finish up that teaching and they teach that this, this road-cutting man, your son, Jesus Christ the Savior, that even though he died a horrible, horrible death and he was actually dead, dead as dead could be, that he didn't stay dead. When these people get the chance to hear about the resurrection and finally connect all of those dots and see your son, Jesus, as that lamb that takes away the sin, the one that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, Lord, we pray that they would put their faith totally and wholly in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Father, thank you for accepting what Jesus did on the cross for my sins, for Tim Carmichael. And Father, we pray that you would accept his, what his sacrifice for the Malayali people who put their faith in him later today. We're going to be praying for that. Thank you, Father, for preparing this wedding feast. I am so looking forward to it. Help us, Lord, to share that invitation with those who haven't yet got it, Lord, so that they could be there as well. It's in the name of your Son that I pray. Amen.